Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Fast talk. Street talk. Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid talk. Hot talk. The independent republic of Mike Graham. The home of common sense. Talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. The place to be for the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And of course, also the home of common sense. Uh, Because common sense will tell anyone uh, with a brain that it's a good idea to make sure that when you have a state occasion, which is being watched by people from all over the world, uh, that you don't allow it to be ruined, messed up, screwed up uh, by a bunch of screwball fanatics who think that they've got every single right to do whatever they want, whenever they want, uh, at any time. I'm afraid that's not the way the world works. People who think uh, that the Republic as an organisation didn't get to protest uh, will soon see the protest that they actually did carry out at the uh, coronation on Saturday afternoon. Thousands of people chanting, not my king, up and down Pall Mall, up and down um, Trafalgar Square and any other part of the city they could get access to. Uh, Listen to Graham Smith, uh, the Republic CEO or chairman or whatever the hell he is, uh, moaning and groaning onto Julie Hartley Brewer, you know, who apparently has taken his side in all of this. It's incredible. This is a guy uh, who is associated with all manner of anarchy type uh, pr- protests, right? He says that he had an agreement with the police. He says uh, that they weren't going to do anything terrible. He says that they've always been peaceful. Well, uh, you might want to have to listen to Richard Tice's interview with one of the uh, Republic members who spoke up on Sunday on Richard's show, who basically said that they wanted to uh, address the climate crisis. They wanted to strip people of ownership of their homes. They wanted to completely and utterly undo capitalism. Well, these are the same people who glue themselves to things every single day of the week, every chance they get, and get locked up for it. So who's right? It's not even a question, really. It's quite rhetorical. 0344 499 1000. Anne Whittacombe is here, former government minister uh, and MEP, of course. We'll get her view on it. Also, Lawless Britain. Uh, it's a terrible, terrible story over the course of the weekend, which also happened uh, on our watch. And that was that Sadiq Khan, unfortunately, had what can only be described as a very, very a difficult uh, weekend because a 16-year-old boy stabbed in London became the 150th teenager murdered since uh, Sadiq Khan actually became mayor. Terrible news, terrible story, terrible situation and nothing seemingly being done to improve it. 
We'll also be talking about Boris Johnson and uh, King Charles apparently having a bust up over the deal to send uh, migrants to Rwanda. We'll also be talking about the ULEZ situation in the city. We've got as well Laura Dodsworth here as well. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Also, a new, very interesting story about electric vehicles and how parts of Africa are being completely and utterly raised to the ground in order to survive, uh, in order to send as many uh, minerals and battery components as they possibly can to the West so that very rich people can buy very expensive electric cars which are apparently crushing our bridges and destroying our roads. Brilliant. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Let's get it on. So, you may have enjoyed the Royal Weekend. You may not have enjoyed it. You may have watched it. You may not have watched it. You may have done a great many things. You may have done nothing. But here we are uh, on Tuesday after a bank holiday. Some people still talking about it and some people still annoyed about it. Republic say they weren't allowed to protest. Their voices were silent. Here's what they did on Saturday. Hmm. I'd say that looks like a protest to me. What do you think? 0344 499 1000. They had their protest, they just didn't have it in the mall, which is seemingly the place where Graham Smith wanted to be. And there's a reason why they didn't do it there, because that is like literally the home straight, the final furlong uh, of the procession as it goes back to Buckingham Palace. Why would you want them there? They could be in Pall Mall, they could be in Trafalgar Square, they could be in any number of places, Whitehall, just not the mall. Seems perfectly reasonable to me. Let's talk to Anne Whittaker and find out what she makes of it all. Anne, a very good morning to you. Morning to you. Now, um, this has caused quite a lot of dissent around these parts. Julie Hartley Brewer being um, an absolutist about it, saying that, you know, they should have been allowed to protest wherever they wanted. I think the police got it right. And I think they've probably made a mistake by apologising, saying they got it wrong. Yes, I agree entirely. I think the police did get it right. If one protester had glued himself in the path of the procession, if one protester had spooked a horse yeah. with a megaphone, uh, that would have been then uh, the springboard for everybody to say the police were incompetent, the police didn't do their job, the police should have seen it coming. We've been listening now for weeks to various people saying, you know, that they were going to disrupt the coronation um, and, and, you know, protests, etc. Yeah. Now, uh, there was a protest. You just showed the, the photos of the protesters. It's a nonsense to say that anti-monarchists weren't allowed to protest. Mm. Uh, but also, of course, Just Stop Oil <coughs> were present and they're not known for their restraint. Uh, and I think the police were right <coughs> to be as forceful as they were. Yeah. Um, and quite inevitably, they've arrested people that they then didn't have enough evidence to prosecute. OK, uh, so you're sorry just to those people. But for the overall approach, there is no need for them to apologise at all. No, I think an event like the coronation, which, as we know, happens once every 70 years in this particular case, uh, you don't risk it being ruined by a couple of uh, extremist nutters who think that they want to make a point uh, when they were perfectly easily able to make that point um, half a mile away, which is exactly what they did. You know, there's nothing wrong with them. You know, I've got no problem in protesting uh, the monarchy. If they don't like the monarchy, that's absolutely their right to say so. But you don't do it right up front at the beginning of or uh, at the end of the procession from Westminster Abbey to Buckingham Palace. Well, I don't even think I would have minded that if it could have been absolutely guaranteed that they would do nothing except stand there and chant. Yeah. But, of course, we all know, you know, we've seen the extreme measures that had to be taken to safeguard the Grand National at Aintree. Uh, we've seen people 
uh, not able to get to hospitals, not able to get to work mm -hmm. because just stop oil have been uh, holding up uh, pretty well whole cities and causing gridlock. Uh, and uh, therefore we know, and the police know, um, that it is not just a question of waving a few placards. And they were absolutely right to try and distinguish between the two activities. Yeah. And you certainly couldn't risk it on the mull. Uh, you couldn't risk spooking the horses. You couldn't risk uh, people actually trying to get out into the procession and do themselves. You couldn't risk any of that. So it was right to confine it uh, to Trafalgar Square. Yeah, they uh, weren't prevented from protesting. I'd be the first to be up in arms if they'd been prevented from protesting. Right. They were. They're, but that's, they're but that's the thing. It's completely wrong to say they were prevented from protesting. A small group of them who clearly wanted to gain access to the procession and to be right up close to it for whatever reason. They say they weren't going to disrupt it, but we've only got their word for that, you know. Um, and as I said to Julia, you know, there are situations where you can, in fact, intervene before an event, such as when yeah. you stop and search people in the street because you suspect they might uh, be up to no good, such as when you um, arrest a terrorist because you think they might be about to uh, commit a terrorist act. So there is plenty of precedent for the police intervening before the event to make sure it goes smoothly. Well, yes, and as I say, if just one incident had taken place, one horse had been spooked, uh, if just one thing had happened, you know, the mountain of criticism that would have been heaped on the police, um, you know, they were damned if they did, yes. damned if they didn't, quite honestly. That was the situation of the Met. I'm rather sorry that they've, that they've apologised. Um, I think they did the right thing, and I wish they would do it more often. Well, exactly right. I mean, I would rather take your view that, that, you know, this is the way to deal with Just Stop All. This is the way to deal with Extinction Rebellion. And I'd like to see more robust policing of those kinds of protests. Also, you know, the idea that uh, the police have apologised now leaves them open to being sued by these characters. Uh, and Graham Smith this morning said they were seeking legal advice as to whether they could uh, take some public money off the police uh, for wrongful imprisonment. Yes, well, that's, that's just one reason why the police should not have apologised. The police should have said robustly, we were doing our job, we were taking every last precaution. You know, um, it, it is often the case that when somebody is arrested, they are subsequently released without charge. That is not an unusual situation in British justice. It uh, doesn't mean that they were arrested on frivolous or malicious grounds. Um, just means there was insufficient evidence to charge them at the end. Yeah. Now, you know, I, we just all need to keep a sense of proportion and some common sense there. They are clearly demonstrating. They were not stopped from demonstrating. No. Well, you can see it even as we speak. There's loads of them, hundreds of them, maybe thousands of them in Trafalgar Square and walking up and down Whitehall. You know, you would think to some extent if they were as noisy as that, by the uh, by the actual procession itself, you know, that would have been an embarrassing situation for the country, wouldn't it? Well, it would have been embarrassing for the country, but I, I'm, I'm all for free speech. But I think it would also have led to breaches of the peace. Well, that's the other uh, aspect of it that uh, I mentioned uh, to uh, Julia. Breaches that, of the peace. Yeah. They've, they've done that in the mall with a, a whole load of, you know, cheering supporters around. Um, then I think, uh, you know, the, there might have been some outbreaks of violence. So I think I can only say again, I think the police were absolutely right. I wish they hadn't apologised. Above all, I wish that this sets a precedent for the line that they'll take in future and that they'll intervene as much as they can before something happens right. rather than trying to cope with it afterwards. But that's the other problem with the apology is that because of that now, everybody they try to arrest in an, in an upcoming protest will say, are you going to let me go tomorrow and then apologise to me? Uh, and they would also say, and then I'll sue you afterwards, yeah. so carry on, officer. Yeah. yeah. I, it, so it, they've it, totally it, undermined their own authority. Yeah, 
I agree. I don't know why they've done it, but then I don't know why the police do an awful lot of things they do. I mean, more importantly, I suppose, and I guess it's not uh, necessarily to, right to blame the police here, but 150 teenagers have been violently killed in London since Sadiq Khan was elected mayor. You know, that is a shameful statistic and a terrible statistic and an awful statistic. Um, what can we do about that? Well, why do people carry knives? Why are people prepared to use knives? Mm. The answer is they don't think they'll be caught. They don't think there'll be consequences. The, what, the only thing that stops violence is if the person about to perpetrate it, A, believes they'll be caught, and B, believes that there will be unpleasant consequences as a result of being caught. Now, they don't believe that. You know, every time the police try to up, stop and search, which is one way of preventing people from carrying knives, there's an immediate protest. You know, it's an infringement of liberty. They're doing it more to the blacks than to the whites. They're doing this, they're doing that. Uh, and that is the sort of protest that we get every single time. Um, and yet it is crucial that preventative action is taken. That's what we saw at the coronation, preventative action. Mm. That's what we need in controlling gangs and in controlling knife carrying and in controlling the violence which has now broken out, particularly amongst teenagers. <laughs> Don't do that. You won't, you, know, you won't deter it. No. Uh, once again, they're dealing with things after the event. There needs to be a huge deterrent factor. If you believed that if you left home with a knife in your pocket, you were going to be stopped before you got to the end of the road. You were going to be searched and that not only was the knife going to be confiscated, but that you were going to be arrested. Yeah. Then that would really rather spoil your evening. So you probably wouldn't do it. No, exactly right. I mean, Scotland Yard is currently investigating uh, several incidents over the weekend, including four people who were shot in three separate incidents in London. In all three shootings, the victims had been sitting in a car when a gunman approached and opened fire. I mean, it sounds like something out of Chicago. Uh, it does, and we're, we're rapidly getting that way. We'll never be as bad as Chicago because there's no right to bear arms in this country. But the problem is there isn't a policing uh, of those who do. Uh, and uh, probably, I don't know, but probably most of these guns are unlawfully obtained. They are uh, almost certainly illegally imported. Uh, that is what you generally find, particularly amongst gang crime mm. and drug crime, which is a big source uh, of violence. Um, and... Uh, it, that. You can't blame the police for that. There has to be some control also uh, of how guns get in uh, to the hands of those who are prepared to use. Yeah, absolutely right. And there must be some way of tracking all these guns, how they're getting into the country, where they're being bought and sold and where the marketplace is for them as well. Stay with us. And if you would, we've got a few more things to talk to you about. Anne Whittacombe is here, former government minister, of course, and MEP. We might talk a bit about the migrants and the boats because that's back in the news, of course, as well. Lots of you want to get in touch with me. Uh, Brian in Bristol says, not my king. What rubbish. Like it or lump it. He is your king. And uh, he says, Julia, you're a hypocrite. As you said, you would not agree with protests at the Queen's funeral. Well, that was a royal event. I mean, would you have let them romp up and down uh, on the Queen's funeral route in the Mall? Because I wouldn't. Don't think so. These protesters cause distraction and diversion that terrorists can use. Better talking today about wrongful arrest than many dead. Terrorists only have to be lucky once. Well, that's right. Paul says that. This is part of the other problem, right? Because if you've got a load of protesters, you've got a load of people distracting the police, that takes the police's eye off the ball. And I'm sure they made an operational decision. And they made the right decision. The fact that they've now apologised for it makes a mockery of that decision, it seems to me. This is Talk TV. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV.
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Uh, yes, says Jane in Kent, I agree with you and Anne Whittacombe. The police were aware of intelligence that the group were going to spook the horses with these rape alarms. Carnage and mayhem was avoided by the police who were doing their job of protecting the public. If these Republicans want to change things, why not form a political party and get people like-minded to vote for them at the ballot box? That's called democracy. The police do their job under extreme conditions. They're damned if they do, damned if they don't. They shouldn't have apologised for keeping the public safe. Well, I think that's right. Uh, Anne Whittacombe is still with us, of course. Um, we've been talking about lawless Britain. Um, we will be talking, I'm sure, over the course of the next few weeks and months, Anne, about the, light, the illegal migrant problem, but also the legal migrant problem, which has been highlighted recently. And we're going to see, we think, a figure that's going to come out towards the end of this month, that something like 750,000 net migrants have come into the country perfectly legally, uh, which is increasing the, the sort of pressure on, on our infrastructure even more. I think that... Um you've got to distinguish between um, what pressures that migrants cause, which they do on, um, on infrastructure, but also what skills they bring with them. Now, the great joy of Brexit was not that we were ever going to close the borders, but that we were going to control the borders, that we were going to say who could come here and who couldn't, what terms they would come here on, what skills or qualifications they had to have, etc., etc. We could lay it down. And importing skills, um, I always think, is a pity because we should be skilling our own workforce. But where there are obvious deficiencies, then you do need to import. Now, we've been doing that for years. And, and it isn't just a numbers game. Uh, it is also a question of what's good for the economy. Yeah. Illegal immigration is something completely different because you have no idea of the numbers involved. Uh, because they disappeared uh, into the uh, underground economy, usually very quickly. You have no idea even if some of them have arrived because they've managed to get away with it. You know, they haven't arrived in boats. They haven't been caught in lorries. They've got away with it. Uh, and so they are a very different problem. Um, and, and I do want to distinguish between the two because I think it is dangerous to try and lump them together. Yes, I think it is dangerous, but it's also dangerous to assume that the illegal migration problem um, is going to be sorted out uh, while uh, the legal migration problem is still an actual bigger number. Oh, I, I don't. Well, as I say, we don't know the numbers of illegal migrants. That, that's you know, the problem. We don't know who's stayed. Uh, we don't know who's gone. Uh, we, we just don't know anything no. uh, about people who really are operating illegally. Uh, so uh, it's impossible to compare numbers. Um, but uh, it, you're quite right, we can't assume that the illegal migrant crisis is going to be handled because it hasn't been handled so far. I know we've had an awful lot of promises, but we've had precious little of any delivery. Yes. Tiny bit of delivery, but very little. So we get a lot of promises. Uh, and the reason that they're still keeping on coming is because they know that there are no consequences to be born. They're not going to go to Rwanda. Uh, some of them will be sent back to Albania. That is one of the areas in which we've had some success. Yes. Uh, for the most part, they'll come here. They won't be detained. And eventually, because they know their claims are false, uh, the genuine ones will stay, of course, but because the ones who know their claims are false, they won't stay above ground. They'll disappear. That yes. is why people come here. We've no national identity cards. We don't practice detention. It's the easiest country in the West in which to disappear. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, you made it absolutely clear. You nailed it there, well, I think, when you said the thing in trouble is we don't know anything 
And we oh. seem to have a home office that is entirely and utterly not fit for purpose. We've been told it's been not fit for purpose since the days of John Reed, for heaven's sake. But it now seems to be almost inoperative completely. Well, I, it, the problem is it, it lies with, um, with politicians uh, and with civil servants, with implementation. Uh, but the problem does lie principally with the politicians who simply have not got to grips with this one and who've always made excuses uh, not to get to grips with it. Yeah. I advocated in 1999, I mean, for sake, how long ago is that, that we should practice automatic detention of all new asylum seekers right. so that we know where they were. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been saying that for years, but yes. it's not happening. It's no, of course not. Happening. Well, that's because all the same people who don't want to lock up the people from Republic don't want to lock up illegal migrants either. They don't want to lock anybody up. Well, unfortunately, <laughs> we bear the consequences. All well, we do. You just don't know how many illegal migrants they are, so you, you can't do a numbers game of comparison with the legal ones. No, but we but, also don't know how many are coming as, as students, bringing members of their family, and then staying over the, uh, the allotted time. And sometimes years and years and years later, you discover that they've been working in the black economy. Yes, I mean, we do know, of course, a number of students who come. Yes. What we don't have is, is a good exit check. Right. You know, a lot of the countries have very good exit checks. Mm. Uh, and they know who leaves, um, and uh, students come here. Now, some stay on perfectly lawfully because they've got the sort of skills we want to have. Um, some of them have brought dependents, uh, and, but some of them have also brought working spouses uh, who've kept them while they've been studying yeah. or helped to keep them while they've been studying, yeah. all very laudable. So once again, you can't treat everything as, um, as, as, as just one big lump, and no. that is the problem. No, but, but equally, you can't just keep saying, oh, well, that's great that they've brought somebody with them to work and marvellous. But that's two more people in the country uh, that's already getting rather full. And that's my problem is that, you know, there's not enough doctors, there's not enough hospitals, there's not enough space on the roads. You know, there's not enough um, houses. You know, we cannot continue to bring in over half a million people a year and only build 100,000 houses. Well, I mean, you hit the nail on the head with the second part, which is the, the housing issue. Uh, and the infrastructure isn't geared up to have an infinitely expanding population. I mean, mm. everybody knows that. But as I say, it's a question of control. It's a question of saying, no, what's good for the country? Yeah. Uh, you know, we need certain skills. We also have certain duties. I mean, I have no problem with our taking in and educating doctors whom we then send back to the third world. I yeah. mean, I have no problem with that at all. That is the West sharing its advantages. Uh, the problem is uh, when students do not return. And as I say, there is an answer to that. And it's called exit check. Yes, exactly right. One final question, Anne. Um, the bust-up, supposedly, between Boris Johnson and um, King Charles that took place uh, in Rwanda over the whole business of uh, sending people back to Rwanda because Charles had apparently called it appalling. What sort of king do you think he's going to be? Do you think he's going to be somebody who interferes a bit more than our last queen? I really hope he doesn't because if he does, it will get out. You know, there's no such thing as a private conversation. Yeah. Uh, if he does, it will get out um, and it will cause quite unnecessary controversy. He did himself say when he was Prince of Wales that he understood the difference and that when he became a monarch, he wouldn't be able to be quite so forthcoming mm. about what his views were. Uh, and uh, so I think he should be very, very careful and I, I think he should remain strictly neutral. I mean, on this occasion, I would disagree with the king over at Rwanda. There might be other occasions where I'd agree with him. But whether I agree or disagree, he shouldn't really make those statements. Now he is king. Yeah, I think that's right. And great to talk to you as ever. Look out for your column tomorrow in The Express. Yes, indeed. 
Excellent. Anne Widdicombe, uh, a fantastic woman, talks an awful lot of common sense, happens to agree with me on this, doesn't always agree with me, but does agree with me on this business of the Republic protesters uh, because they did get their protest, they did get their voices heard, they did make their points, uh, they just didn't do it exactly as they wanted. That's okay, isn't it? This is Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV with you all the way through until one o'clock. Of course, it is a big day. Uh, we're back after the coronation weekend. There's a lot to talk about following what happened. Uh, not so much about the coronation itself, but more about the way uh, the protests were handled. The police, of course, getting involved on Saturday morning, arresting a bunch of people from Republic. Republic say they had a deal with the police and, which was reneged upon. Uh, they were taken out of the game because they wanted to protest along the Mall, uh, which the police clearly decided wasn't a good idea. They were still uh, given free reign to protest and shout and scream and shout not my king all up and down Whitehall and in Trafalgar Square. It wasn't as if they didn't have a voice at all. Um, but of course, now the police under the auspices of Sadiq Khan have apologised and said that uh, they regret actually arresting them. Well, I don't understand why you would do anything like that. Let's talk to Gareth Bacon, MP, Conservative MP for Orpington. Uh, Gareth, I know we're going to talk about Theresa Villiers and her, and her over, overturning ULEZ plans, but, but just before we do that, I see that you've tweeted out about Sadiq Khan um, recently and his disastrous policies, not only for motorists, but yeah. we get today more crime figures. 150 teenagers uh, have been violently killed during the time that he's been mayor. Um, some people think he's behind this kind of police climb down. Well, he may very well be. I mean, I think the key thing to remember about Sadiq Khan, he's been in office now for just over seven years. Yeah. Um, and every aspect of the responsibilities uh, that he has, he's failing on. Um, and what he does is he'll always look to pass the buck and blame somebody else. Yeah. So um, I've no doubt that he was in the commissioner's ear over the weekend because his constituent base, uh, the left of, of the political spectrum in London, will have been protesting about this. Um, and so he'll be playing to his base. So he's made loud complaints about the police. Uh, and the police have subsequently apologised. So I wouldn't be at all surprised if Sadiq Khan has something to do with that. Yeah, I mean, I think most sensible people actually think that what the police did was the right thing to do. It didn't stifle the Republic's mm. view. It didn't stop them from making their point. It didn't make any difference really to them at all. Um, but now he's laid them open to the police, that is, to some kind of legal action. And they may well be sued now. Well, it's not the first time that Sadiq Khan has, has thrown the police under the bus, is it? I mean, I can remember uh, umpteen occasions in the past where the police have said they will have to do something according to the law. Sadiq Khan has made no noise, and then after the event, he's tried to throw them under the bus. So he's got form for this. It's, it's not a particular surprise that he's done this. Now, I, I wasn't in Westminster uh, for the coronation weekend. I was uh, back in my constituency watching it in the rain. Mm. Um, so I didn't see any of the things that happened on the streets uh, behind me. Um, all, I, all I know is what I've read and, and depending on who you read, either the police were heavy handed in implementing uh, the new legislation or they enabled the, con the, the coronation to go ahead without a hitch. Mm. Um, I think the, the truth is probably somewhere there. Uh, I don't know what it was. Well, the only people um, who say they were heavy handed are the, are the people who they arrested from, uh, from the Republic organisation. They don't seem to have been put through any particularly terrible process. They were not heavy handed as such. They just, they just locked them up for 16 hours. 
Yes, I mean, we've got uh, a couple of uh, members of Parliament who have applied for urgent questions in the House today. I don't know whether they'll get them or not. Um, but they're all, they're all members of Parliament from the left of the political spectrum. So yes, that's the, the, the protest against what the police have done is all coming from a particular direction. Yeah, no doubt. I would expect Caroline Lucas to try and uh, cause a bit of trouble. You never know. Let's talk yes, about... She, uh, she was one of the MPs who put UQ in. There you go. Um, it's, easy, it's easy, this guessing game in Parliament, isn't it? Um, let's talk about you, Les. Um, <laughs> Theresa Villiers um, apparently mm. wants to get involved in this. I mean, I've been talking to people up and down the mm. country for the last several weeks, you know, people in Birmingham, people in Glasgow, people in Bristol, people in Oxford. You know, there's an awful lot of dissent yep. now arising from uh, these ridiculous expansion plans of, of, of ultra-low emission mm. zones and all the rest of it. What is, what is Theresa Villiers um, hoping to, to, to gain? Well, last week she introduced what's known as a 10-minute rule bill, which is almost what it says on the tin. So uh, a member, any member can do this. Um, you propose a new law and you stand up and you get 10 minutes to make a speech in the mm. House of Commons. What effectively you are doing is asking for leave to bring the bill for a second reading, which is when the legislative process starts. Right. Um, and Theresa's bill um, calls to give explicit power to the government to overrule the Mayor of London in certain circumstances. Uh, in this case, on transport, or, oh, sorry, road uh, and air quality policies. Um, she made her speech. Uh, you need to have 10, min 10 members sign that bill. I was one of the members who did sign to sponsor that bill. Uh, it passed unopposed and the second reading is due to be on the 24th of November. Now, in reality, most 10-minute rule bills don't make it all the way to the statute book. Mm. The reason you do it is to apply pressure onto the government so that ministers can see the strength of feeling and also so the general public can see that MPs care about this issue and are trying to change things. And that's yeah. what I think Theresa's trying to do and trying to draw attention to. And will it put any more pressure on, on the, sort of the, the legal uh, aspect of this? Because there is a, um, a dispute in the courts, isn't there, over, over Sadiq Khan's move to expand the, the ULEVs uh, area, saying mm -hmm. that he might have been unlawful in doing so. Um, yes and no. So there's two legal questions here. The first one is the judicial review, which is taking place in July. Um, Theresa's 10-minute rule bill will have no impact on that. Um, they'll judge that based on the current law um, and whether or not Sadiq Khan followed the process properly. Um, that'll be a one-day hearing and, and we'll, we'll hear the, the outcome of that. I think it's in early July. I don't know the precise date. What Theresa's trying to do is change the law going forward. So even if that judicial review fails, her bill would give the government explicit power to overall the mayor if they chose to do that. Mm. So as far as the, um, uh, the next move is concerned, I suppose, um, we've seen an awful lot of uh, opposition in, in and around London, in your constituency mm. and others that, that are sort of surrounding yeah. the whole of, of the metropolitan area, really. Um, mm. You know, is there any sign from Sadiq Khan that he's willing to make any kind of concession whatsoever? No, none at all. Um, he, he's been very arrogant and high-handed about the whole thing. Mm. I mean, he, he denounced Theresa Villiers and said that what she was doing was playing politics. Well, I find that slightly <laughs> ironic coming from a man who does nothing but play politics. Yeah, this is a man uh, who said that it's very... This is a man that said in a, in a London Assembly meeting, it's very clear that Tories don't care about uh, children dying from air pollution. Yeah. I mean, if yes, that's not playing politics, then what is? opposing... Well, of course, and you know he's gone further than that because he's, he's denounced everybody that's uh, opposing his ULES expansion, called them all far-right, COVID deniers and neo-Nazis. Yeah. I mean, this is a man that plays politics all the time. Yeah. Um, so he's, he's, he's not going to back down. He's got a new book coming out, I think, uh, very, fairly soon called Breathe. Which I don't is know where he finds the time to write. In, in cities. Well, yes, indeed. Um, but so, so he's not going to back down. He's going to fight this all the way and he's going to do it, I think. Um, so the next question will be, can the government intervene? Um, I will certainly be putting pressure on them to do so if he implements this. And of course, if that doesn't work, then we do have a mayoral election in literally a year's time. Yeah. 
I mean, some people say to me the problem with um, all of this opposition to Sadiq Khan from the Tory party in Westminster uh, is that the net zero um, sort of contingent of the Conservative Party is still very much probably in support of what he's doing. Mm. Some are, some aren't. I mean, we need, to, we need to distinguish net zero from air quality. It's not necessarily the same thing. Net zero is about emissions. Right. Air quality is about the air we breathe. Well, surely um, emissions of course, just uh, he contribute to the air that we breathe, don't they? Of course they do. But they don't con contribute to climate change. Um, and what we, what we need to be aware of is that this is actually not going to improve air quality at all. And we know that because the Jacobs report, which the mayor was required to have produced independently so he couldn't control the outcome, it tells us it won't. So we know from their report that it will have a minor to negligible impact. So whether it improves, whether the argument is that it's about air quality is neither here nor there because we know it's not really. Um, so whether there's air quality people um, in Parliament who, who think this is a good idea, it doesn't matter because this isn't going to improve air quality. And that's the message I keep banging on about all the time. Mm, exactly. And I mean, we hear this week um, that the sheer weight of electric vehicles is actually now damaging the mm. infrastructure of our roads. I mean, I'm very much of the opinion that one of the reasons we've got more potholes than we used to have is because of all these very, very heavy electric vehicles, vans, cars, uh, if there are buses as well. Um, but they're now apparently damaging the bridges of, uh, of our country. Mm. Well, that's quite possibly so. And it's something that nobody's really done any, any proper research on that I'm aware of. Electric vehicles are, by very def definition, very much heavier yeah. than the petrol and diesel counterparts. Um, and of course, the other problem we've got is that we don't have enough rapid charging points so people can charge their vehicles up. The range of an electric vehicles is much lower than a petrol and diesel car. So there is a big problem coming over the hill because at the moment the government wants to ban the sale of new fossil fuel driven cars in less than seven mm. years, um, which would imply, of course, that we'll all be driving electric vehicles in a decade or so's time. Whether the roads can take that, whether mm. we've got uh, the provisions to make the batteries of the cars, um, all of these questions still haven't been resolved as far as I'm aware. No, they really haven't. And in fact, the answer at the moment is that we are not in a position to, uh, to support everybody driving an electric car. There's not enough charge points, there's not no. enough electricity, uh, and frankly, yep. um, there's not enough places to park them all. Yes, I mean, that's true. I mean, if, if you were to turn off petrol-driven um, cars and uh, fossil fuel-driven cars today and make us all switch to electric vehicles, then the whole, the whole country would grind to a standstill. Well, I mean, some parts of it already have. <laughs> I'm sorry to say that many of them are not a million miles from where you're standing. But, Gareth, thank you very much indeed. Gareth well, Bacon, uh, MP, Conservative for Alpington, of course, uh, reporting into us live there from College Green uh, outside the House of Commons. Back tomorrow there, of course, uh, there will be Prime Minister's questions. There will also be this afternoon a question asked, an emergency question asked about the police arresting those members of Republic. And as I incredibly correctly guessed, you know, it's almost as though I've got some kind of um, psychic power you know, Caroline Lucas from the Green Party is one of the people that might be asking a question. How surprising is that? This is Talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Lots going on today. We've got lots of calls to take. We will get to all of them. Coming up in this hour, Laura Dodsworth is here. Uh, she'll be giving us her view uh, about the coronation weekend and all the events arising from it, including, of course, uh, the police action and activity against Republic, uh, the organisation who don't like the monarchy, don't want the monarchy uh, and wish to disrupt everything the monarchy does. So entirely uh, up to them. That's what they like to do. Coming up in this hour, we'll also be speaking to Susan Hall, uh, who is, of course, at the London Assembly. She's chair of the Police and Crime Committee because we got some terrible news today that four people were stabbed to death in separate incidents across Britain around the eve of the coronation. One of them uh, made out uh, that it turned out was the 150th 
violent killing of a young man uh, in London since um, Sadiq Khan became mayor. 150 young people dead uh, as a result of violent activity in London. It doesn't seem to be getting any better. Uh, people are now being shot as well as being stabbed. It really is quite an extraordinary state of affairs. Got lots of uh, you with things to say about the doctors and the pharmacies, which are apparently uh, going to be the new way that we uh, we do everything here. I've been asking the question, can you see your doctor? Uh, and I've got lots of you telling me exactly how bad or how good it is in your situation. And also, electric vehicles today we're going to be talking about. Roger says, Mike, if an electric vehicle weighs a third more than a petrol one, presumably electric coaches and lorries will weigh more too. The bridges around London will not be able to hold this increase in weight. Well, that's absolutely right. And Steve says, Mike, in my book, it's preventing a possible breach of the peace. Prevention is always better than a bad outcome. Rather than arrest, there should be a facility in law to merely temporarily detain rather than arrest people. Well, it's kind of the same thing. I mean, it's more or less what they did. They did arrest people. They temporarily detained them for about 16 hours and they let them go. And now they've apologised. Um, and Sadiq Khan is calling for an inquiry. As if you would. A bit of breaking news, by the way. Speaking of... Uh, People being detained. Pakistan's former Prime Minister Imran Khan has been arrested in Islamabad uh, to face charges in a corruption case, which he says are politically motivated. You might remember um, he was shot in the legs not that long ago either. Um, also, we're watching, bizarrely on Sky, I don't know why they keep showing it, they keep showing um, pictures and sort of a live stream footage of the Russia parade. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Not quite sure why they're doing that. They've been showing it for hours. It's like some kind of propaganda machine for the Putin regime. Who knows why they're doing that? Let's talk to Susan Hall and get some sense onto the show. Susan, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well indeed. Very well indeed. Did you enjoy the weekend? Oh, I did. It was wonderful. I loved watching the coronation. I'm a massive royalist. Yes, good. Well, um, I'm not sure about Sadiq Khan. I mean, he says he is, um, but he's now managed to get the police to apologise for arresting those uh, um, idiots from uh, Republic. Oh, Sadiq Khan. Sadiq Khan needs to get a grip. So many people are not feeling safe in London. Mm. We've just got this horrific wave of teenage murders. This has got to stop. He's got one year left as mayor, and he really has got to get the Met Police out of special measures and roll his sleeves up and get a grip of this because it's just not fair to Londoners. He's not looking after any of us. Well, that was a terrible milestone, wasn't it, to pass this weekend? More than 150 teenagers murdered in the capital since he became mayor. I know, absolutely awful. And, and while we hear this, um, <laughs> while we hear about teenagers dying on our streets, he's busy publicising his new book. Yeah. I mean, he's the police and crime commissioner. He needs to be taking it seriously. Well, he seems to be police and crime commissioner when it suits him, doesn't he? You know, huh. whenever there's anything wrong with the police, he has a go at them and says that he can't understand why they've had this culture for such a long time. He's been mayor for a long time while the culture has been going on. He's been mayor for seven years and people are feeling less and less safe on our streets. Um, he doesn't always support the police. Uh, he'll, he'll go, he'll bend with the wind and then he blames the government. Yeah. Uh, he really needs to spend his last year concentrating 
on sorting out the Metropolitan Police and allowing Londoners to feel safe again. Yes, I think it's so important because so many parts of London now you're seeing ridiculously lawless incidents. You know, for a long time, I think they, they've now arrested the particular gang that was that was doing it. But people were having watches ripped off their arms in, in sort of yeah. the West End, in Knightsbridge. We had Oxford Street sort of under siege by gangs of people just running into shops and running out with go- with goods, stealing them. You've got people being shot now in sort of drive-by shootings. It's extraordinary. It's dreadful. And the problem is the vulnerable uh, fear the police, but the villains don't. Mm. The criminals just do not fear them at all. And things have got to change. It's, I mean, Khan's all for carrot. I'm all for stick, I'm afraid. Yes. We've got to the point that these villains have to be locked up um, so our streets become safer again because we cannot go on like this. We're on a slippery slope and under Sadiq Khan, we're disappearing down it very, very quickly. Yeah. Got to stop. And what's your view of Sir Mark Rowley? What's he doing and how's he doing? Actually, I have got a lot of time for Sir Mark Rowley. He appreciates the issues the police have got. At least he understands the issues um, and he's trying to deal with it. At the moment, I think he's still trying to get permission to sack officers mm. that are not up to uh, speed. And I think the Home Secretary is dealing with that. And I sincerely hope they give him those powers quickly because he's got to root out the 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 problems within the force. Yes. But we mustn't forget he's got 45,000 staff. This, this should have been done a long while ago. Under Sadiq Khan, it's an absolute disaster. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. But let's not forget, he is supposed to be as well the sort of the top police officer in the land. And so he doesn't just have to root out whatever the problems are inside of the force. He has to actually make sure that it's fit for purpose as well. and They're doing their jobs properly. And I wonder, as a result of this Republic arrest, whether he's now undermined that by sort of saying, oh, we're really sorry. Because every protester now is going to say to a copper, oh, yeah, what, you're going to arrest me and then apologise to me tomorrow so I can sue you? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, look at look how well the coronation went. And nobody must underestimate the amount of work that the police did to make sure that it went off well. They had um, indications that rape alarms were going to be thrown at the horses. Well, that's terrifying on, yeah. the, on the basis that those horses, when out of control, become very dangerous in themselves. Not to forget there was a massive spectacle uh, of London for the whole of the world. So the, the police had a very difficult... Balancing act. Well, if if something had gone wrong, you know, the police would have been getting a far harder time than they're getting today because they didn't actually stop it from happening. That's right. I mean, they're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't. Yeah. Uh, the, the problem recently is, I mean, I will always depend, defend people's rights to, um, to, to go out there and protest. Absolutely, I do. The problem we've had recently with people like Just Stop Oil and uh, and Extinction Rebellion is that they do such drastic things, they cause such chaos, and very often, you know, they're the same people that mm. belong to these different groups. Of course they are. The, the police must have been very nervous that they were going to suddenly do something like throw an, a, mm. a rape alarm under a horse, which would have caused absolute chaos. Well, there are, and, and also there are several things you have to take into account. You know, if the police are watching a group of protesters at, say, the Mall, which is the only place they weren't really allowed to go, um, you know, they could be distracted. They could be distracted from something more serious happening. And as I played out before, 
there was a massive protest against the king in Pal- in Pall Mall and in Trafalgar Square. It wasn't as if they were silenced. They had their protest. In fact, I've got a, um, a note here from somebody who was there who says, my daughter and I were in Trafalgar Square on Saturday um, and they definitely didn't have their voices silenced. They'd taken up a large section of the pavement so we couldn't get near the procession and they were very loud chanting and shouting and waving very large flags. There were quite a lot of people with young children and it was quite scary. And you can't tell what individuals are going to do in that situation. No, I mean, clearly there's an issue over these people that were arrested, and I'm sure the police will deal with that. At the the end of the day, though, we all have to look at what a success Saturday was and how much of an impact that the police had on that. Um, And I applaud them for making sure that that day went off as well as it did. It was fabulous for us to watch and people around the world to watch. Yeah, no, I, I think you should be, we should be congratulating the police for doing a decent job because it did go off pretty much without any incident. It did go off without a hitch. And I know, and you know exactly how much work goes into preventing things happening. Absolutely. Far more than the public will ever know. Yes. Because um, unfortunately, lots of things have to be kept quiet for security reasons, mm. which we all need to understand. So I, I would applaud what the police did on Saturday. I'm sure other people will be looking into those arrests to, yes. to, to see how things could be handled differently another time. Exactly. But let's face it, we're not go- please God, we don't have another event like the coronation mm. for many, many years. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, apparently at least normally 70 since the last one. I mean, it's going to be at probably at least 20, I suppose. Um, I've got this from somebody as well that you'll be interested in. Hi, Mike. As a serving police chief superintendent, I can car- categorically tell you that the vast majority of the issues facing policing in this country relates directly to poor leadership. I'm part of a dying breed of cops who strongly disagree with the woke nonsense that has infested policing and allowed neoliberal ideologies to take hold, driven by inexperienced virtue signalling chiefs. And then he says, P.S. I'm retiring shortly. We'll happily come on your show and speak to you about these issues if someone needs to speak out. So oh, that, here, I'll, here. I'll, I agree with that man or yeah. woman. I completely agree with that. Absolutely. Well, Too many times these these woke issues get in the way and the, the lovely liberals are, are make excuses for all sorts of things that go on. We need proper policing back in London. Uh, Sadiq Khan has just got one year left of his mayoralty and he needs to let me well roll his sleeves up and start getting something done about it. We do need common sense applied to this, Mike. We really do. Everything is in such a mess. Yes, it really is. And I mean, you know, Rishi Sunak's trying to fix various things, parts of the uh, NHS, parts of, um, you know, the housing crisis that we've got in this country. Um, Keir Starmer's come out today. Apparently he's going to be speaking to his top team uh, and we can all imagine who they are. Um, He's going to be telling them that the public doesn't care about woke issues. Well, he's wrong about that, isn't he? Because we do. We're sick to death of it. That's yeah. what we are. Uh, we, ju- we just need to go back to the basic common sense and, and certainly run London uh, with common sense in mind. We do have a housing crisis. It needs to be sorted out. Right. We have a major problem with policing and trust and confidence. We need to bring confidence of the public back to the Metropolitan Police. Mm. It's absolutely vital. It really is. Great to talk to you. Good to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Susan Hall, I believe the time is flying like it is. She's the chair of the Police and Crime Committee in London with the terrible news, basically, that uh, 150 young men have now been murdered, have died violently uh, during the time that Sadiq Khan has been mayor of this fine city of ours. And it really has been run down to the point where it's very 
very dangerous in so many parts of it. 0344 499 1000. Uh, we'll be looking forward to getting that um, chief superintendent on when he retires. So we'll be in touch. Uh, this is, of course, Talk TV. Laura Dodsworth coming next. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Good afternoon, in fact, you might say, because we've now moved into the afternoon. It's five minutes past midday uh, on Tuesday, uh, the day after Coronation Weekend. I think we've almost got it out of our system. Uh, We're still arguing about it, of course. Coming up in this hour, we'll be explaining why Keir Starmer has got it completely wrong when he says the great British public are not interested uh, in the idea of woke and unwoke. He says uh, that the culture wars are not what matters to people. He thinks the only thing that matters to people uh, is the cost of living crisis and the NHS. Well, he's wrong about that as well, because, yes, of course, people care about that. Of course, people want the NHS to be better. We've been talking today about whether or not pharmacies could take on more work from GPs. We could say uh, that it might be a good idea. But from the sounds of things, pharmacies are already um, short of people, short of money and not in a position to do in any way the work of a GP uh, simply because they don't have the bandwidth. They don't have the ability to do it. But we'll take your calls on that, of course, as well. Much else besides, Jeanette in Hartlepool sent um, a great message in earlier. I wasn't able to read all of it um, before because I couldn't see all of it. But basically, she was at the um, coronation in London at the weekend. She said she saw an awful lot of people chanting very loudly, shouting, waving very large flags on behalf of the Republic organisation. She says there is no way that their leader can say that they were not going to do anything more than shout and chant and annoy everyone. He can't control all of them. The police had a really hard job on their hands and if someone had been hurt, they would have been blamed. The police were there to keep everyone safe and if that means stopping a situation before it happens, then so be it. I think so. And Alan says, why can't these angry protest groups leave us alone for just one day to enjoy a spectacle that a lot of us would only experience once in our lifetime? I applaud the police action. They shouldn't apologise. Keep up the great work. Well, I think a lot of people feel that that uh, is the point. Peter in Strood, Mike... Mike, there's a difference between protest and hooliganism. Surely this is obvious. Well, I think so. It's obvious to most of us, but not obviously to everyone. But let's talk now to Rupert Darwal, author of Green Tyranny, because we're going to talk about electric vehicles today, not just because we're told that they're so heavy that they could be damaging our bridges, they could be damaging our roads, but also a fascinating piece that I saw actually earlier on this week in the Washington Post about a country called Guinea in West Africa, which is currently being mined to death, practically, by Chinese mining companies. It is the world's biggest reserves of bauxite, a reddish-brown rock that is the main source of aluminium. Uh, That lightweight metal, in turn, it says is essential for electric vehicles because it allows them to travel further without recharging. It's also mineral-rich in uh, in Guinea, with all sorts of things that are needed to make um, electric vehicles, in addition as well to the uh, bauxite. Uh, it's full of all manner of things that are being dug out of the ground, really without fear or favour and without permission in a lot of cases as well. Rupert, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. I must confess, and I know this might sound rather ignorant, but until I read this article, I didn't know much about Guinea. It seems to be a pretty strategic country, though, for all of the mineral wealth that it's got. It's basically north of Liberia and Sierra Leone, south of Mali and Senegal. Um, and it's currently being kind of taken over by China, by the looks of it. Well, China is really big into all the minerals that are required to make uh, batteries and electric vehicles. So it makes sense for the Chinese to, uh, as it were, go for renewable colonialism Yes, um, in this sense. Yeah, it really is. I mean, they're calling it a new sort of gold rush, basically. Uh, They've got bauxite, they've got nickel, they've got lithium, manganese, all of them needed for electric vehicles. Because even though we have not completely gone electric, it sounds as though China is manufacturing millions and millions of electric vehicles as we speak. 
they they want to take that they have they want to displace the west as the biggest producer of uh vehicles and display and replace the west west the west and japan have had the lead in internal combustion engine technology and of course with evs all, all that goes so you're kissing goodbye to the uh, Western automotive industry at the same time. Yeah. Well, I still find it quite hard to believe that with the uh, sort of advent of the new decade, that by 2030, you basically won't be able to buy in this country a new car which is powered by diesel or petrol. That's correct. And interestingly, even the European Union has had second thoughts about that. They had a a goal that their date for compulsory EV purchase was uh, 2035, but they've had a big carve-out for synthetic um, synthetic fuels because, because actually the penny's beginning to drop that you basically can't do this stuff and keep your uh, and keep your automotive industry thriving. Yeah. Well, I actually met uh, at the weekend um, a, a guy who's a, a designer for an electric car company, a big one, and he basically said to me, you know, not on your Nelly should you buy an electric car. And this is a guy that's working producing them because he said, one, um, they're simply not effective and efficient enough yet and they will become more efficient. Um, and also, there simply is not the infrastructure in this country. And now we're hearing today that they're so heavy, they could be actually damaging the roads. Yeah, that's a really, I think that's a really interesting point because they're heavier, because they contain... Essentially, what you're doing is you're replacing a fuel tank Mm. with a very heavy battery and to give you an idea uh, in a conventional car you've got about you've got uh, about 30 kilos of manganese and um, copper in in the vehicle whereas with an ev you've got something over 200 kilos of of manganese uh, uh, lithium Mm. um, graphite and so forth and these are much heavier vehicles and the, the really you know, the really odd thing is they pay no road tax. Yes. Mike. Well, that <laughs> is the other thing that I wonder whether that will change because it's all a bit of a con, isn't it? Because the road tax at the moment con- contributes about 40 billion, I think, to the, um, uh, the general exchequer. Now, if everybody's in an electric car, they're going to have to reintroduce a tax, aren't they, to get some of that money back? Yeah, they'll have to have a mileage tax. They'll have to say... say pay per mile drive Mm. driven but the fact of the matter yes there will be an enormous hole in the public finances and going to net zero which incidentally and this is really a big point is we're told about fossil fuel subsidies remember Mm. the fossil fuel subsidies things well when you phase out fossil fuels you don't you don't eliminate subsidies what you find is actually you've got an enormous hole in the public finances and they will have that hole will have to be filled with higher taxes in some form or other yes well this is the trouble isn't it i mean the whole renewable argument is full of subsidies and secret sort of payments over here and you know a bit of uh, a bit of help over there and you know the, 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 all you know is that the consumer is getting sort of stooped at every turn well Ofgem is using electricity consumers as a piggy bank to subsidize uh, ev charging stations right. so so you'll you'll get a lot of lot more of that kind of thing happening yes well just going back to guinea for a moment have a listen to this when a chinese mining firm first arrived in 2016 uh, in a guinean village near the atlantic coast company representatives and government officials offered residents jobs and cash in exchange for hundreds of acres of their farmland right it's fascinating that the just stop oil brigade have not actually found this to be something they should can demonstrate about uh, soon after dynamite blasting to 
Forger Road for the bauxite mine shattered the concrete walls of people's houses. Um, basically, thick layers of dust from trucks hauling bauxite destroyed villagers' harvests of eggplant, corn and cashews. And as barges transported the ore abroad, chased away the once plentiful fish. So, you know, they've completely killed off the fish in the sea. They've killed off most of the, uh, the farming and agricultural land. There's pictures in this piece, I don't know if you've seen it, uh, of just the entire countryside covered in sort of red dust, palm trees covered in this red dust from the bauxite mining. Truck after truck after truck going down roads. I mean, it's extraordinary. And, and literally nobody's doing anything about it. What you're ha what's happening with net zero is in, this, in this essence, we are exporting our environmental pollution to the nations of Africa. And it's not just environmental uh, harm that's uh, an impact. It's also it's human rights abuses, which you see in Guinea, yeah. but also in the Congo, very famously in the Congo, where, where cobalt, which is the world's biggest source of for co cobalt, which is a which is uses child labor. Yeah. And they're sending these kids down mines, aren't they, to find the stuff? Yeah, I mean, every 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 EV should have a sticker on it saying "Made with Congolese child labour." Yeah, absolutely. Um, but of course, they don't do that because that doesn't quite fit the narrative, and they'd rather sort of turn a blind eye to how they got there. They just think that by driving around in one of these things, uh, it shows that they're a decent individual. And actually, nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah, it's. It's this obsessive monomaniacal focus on carbon dioxide emissions and all the other harms and the, the impacts go for absolutely nothing. It, it is a form of it's a form of insanity, actually, because yeah. you will create a lot of um, damage with this total focus on CO2 emissions. It really is incredible, isn't it? And of, of course, the other situation, and Howard Cox has said this to me on various occasions, that he believes that electric cars will end up being the sort of Betamax uh, of the vehicle business because they will eventually form uh, into hydrogen cells. I believe Toyota are already now working on a hydrogen car, which will be seriously more efficient than an electric car and cer certainly an awful lot less heavy. Well, it was quite interesting in that the government under Boris Johnson was very dismissive of hybrid uh, technology, which is a very sensible, pragmatic way of 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 reducing CO2 emissions. Mm. So hybrid vehicles were also good. They want the purest solution possible, which is EVs, yeah. which is we're discussing has immense um, environmental impacts. Yeah, negative environmental impacts. And I'm told that the government doesn't like hybrid vehicles because people tend not to charge them and they, they leave them just to drive us, as, uh, on the petrol engine. But but there are hybrid vehicles that are not plug-in, which are actually great. You know, you can drive them, they charge themselves as you drive. It seems to me to be the perfect solution, but apparently that's not good enough for the government. And they're, they're also, they're really good in terms of reducing local pollution. What yeah. really matters is, is, is urban pollution. You know, if you're, if you're walking or cycling or whatever, you want to breathe clean air. And that's more important than yeah. the CO2 emissions. Yeah. I mean, here's an interesting thing. Terry in Birmingham says, Mike, regarding electric cars' weight, there are concerns that multi-storey car parts were never designed to take these weights. Look for ones to collapse soon. And in fact, there was one that collapsed in New York. I don't know if that was the cause. But, but certainly I know people who have said that they've had to reconstruct their driveway to put an electric car on it, because basically it started to subside with the weight. That's extraordinary. The other thing is, is the fire hazard as well. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's significant fire hazard with them. Yeah. Yeah. What's good about a car that is spontaneously combusts for no apparent reason? In fact, there's a woman, I was reading a story the other day, of a woman whose car went on fire in the very hot weather of last year, 
Um, and it was so hot that the car basically disintegrated. And one of the problems she's got at the moment in claiming her insurance is that literally the car doesn't exist. There's nothing to show that it went on fire. It, it literally sort of was, was completely kind of liquefied. Good grief! Yes. I mean, you know, and it burned, and it burned a huge, uh, burned down a load of shops and, and and a car park, and all of those people are still waiting for compensation. But the elect, but the um, insurance company going, where's the car? <laughs> yeah. I mean. They, they, it burns at a very, very high temperature. Yes. Once they start, it's very difficult to put them out. Mm. Well, you can't. And then, of course, the other problem is the battery itself. Uh, this is from John, who says, when the bio, when the EV lithium batteries do degrade in a landfill. Um, it's pretty awful. It takes over 100 years for that to happen. And then if you need to replace the battery, it can be somewhere between 15 and 20,000 pounds. Yeah, a huge proportion of the value or the cost of an EV is, is bound up with, that, with the battery. And the problem with batteries is we know from mobile phones that are, their, their, their capacity degrades over yeah. time and right. you get less juice out of them. And also, you only have to remember the days when your battery gets really hot in your phone. And for some reason, I, I can never explain it. I don't know why it happens, but it occasionally just gets really hot. And if you're in a car like that, you know, it doesn't sound like a recipe for success to me. Yeah. Switch on the aircon and you'll drain the battery more quickly. Exactly. Exactly. Shocking. Anyway, listen, uh, great to talk to you, Rupert. Thank you very much indeed. Rupert Darwell, author of Green Tyranny. I tweeted this story out, by the way, about Guinea. And it's a fascinating read. It really is quite extraordinary what's going on there. And the fact that none of these eco-warriors from Just Stop Order, Extinction Rebellion have got anything to say about it at all. A country is literally being laid to waste by Chinese mining companies and not one of these bozos has got a thing to say about it. I wonder why. This is Talk TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. But let us speak to our favourite head teacher uh, right here in London, Serge Cafe. Uh, Serge, a very good afternoon to you. Oh, how are you, Mike? Very good to see you. Back back to work, uh, back to the grindstone yeah, and all of that. Yeah, but concentrating on the kids. It's a pity nobody <laughs> else wants to, isn't it? Yeah, I know. I mean, uh, luckily, you're a, an incredibly uh, efficient and, and, and very um, good provider of education for people and you make it work for them even if uh, they don't think it will but what do you make of um, of Keir Starmer's sort of so-called plan for changing education I don't know if it's going to become something that he does or whether it's just an idea in his head I don't know what it is I don't I know these politicians are surrounded with advisors I'd like to know if these advisors have been anywhere near a school and at any point decided what the kids really need so this latest idea, I've only just read it, your team sent it to me. Yes. You know, another reason to get teachers out of the classroom. Haven't we just had enough of the lockdown? Mm. We've got unions taking kids, uh, teachers out of the classroom, telling everyone what a terrible job it is. Now we've got, it seems, a new plan to uh, focus on what's right for the teachers. It seems to me that what's right for the teachers is actually for them to teach less. Right. Well, I'm sorry, good teachers, they know they're going to the profession, they're never going to be rich, but they're going to the profession because they know they can make a real difference to kids' lives. Yeah. And uh, at some point, you might hope that somebody's going to just put these kids first. Uh, it's becoming increasingly difficult to appoint um, and if you ask any half-decent head teacher, that's what they could be telling you. I can't find half-decent teachers to put in front of my kids. Mm. And uh, we all want them to get paid more. But the answer isn't to have them in the classroom less. Mm. And that's for the exam thing. Listen, I've been long enough to have enough to do with Mickey Mouse qualifications to make things 
easier so they can provide a set of statistics to say our kids are doing better mm. but no one thinks they're credible so they're not employable anymore right so why don't we just make the examinations first of all what society needs so that the kids can contribute to the society in which they're going to live in yeah i mean the only thought secondly, sorry go on no, just to make it credible. You can't stop messing around and watering them down because employers won't recognise them, quite rightly. Yeah. We need to take our steer from what society wants. And uh, I like to think I've always done that with my kids. Um, but seemingly, all that is being forgotten, day yeah. in, day out. But of course, not the private schools. The private schools know what society wants. They know the routes to these good jobs. Um and they play that game very well. When it's a free-for-all, the only kids that suffer, unfortunately, I don't even like the word, but are so-called disadvantaged. Yeah. yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I wanted to ask you about recruitment and things like that because one of the things we're told all the time by the, by the teaching unions is that because the conditions are so terrible and because the pay isn't very good, there's a lot of people leaving the job. Is that your experience in, in the schools well, that you run? There are a lot of people leaving the job. There are not enough people joining the job. Um, that's... I'm afraid is the truth. It's my biggest bugbear at the minute and for the last few years. Yeah. But I'm sorry, the answer isn't to go on strike. All you're telling people is that it is an awful job. I'm fed up with the word workload and everything else. This mm. is a great job. And you can make a fantastic difference. Every year, I've done it for 44. You know, I live on the fact that when we come back after a set of exams and you have a good, like, good chance of changing a kid's life and future, and you've got to feel good about that. I don't know how much that's worth in your pay packet, uh, but it's worth a hell of a lot, and good teachers will value that. Yes. Uh, but well, a bit, a bit like any job that, that you do because you want to do that job. Surely the point of being a teacher is that you want to be part of that child's life. You want to go into work every day and say, yeah, I helped those kids. I helped that kid in particular. And, you know, I got them through something, and look at where they are now. Well... Look, I can't take more. I've loved my job. I'm still I should have retired. I'm still involved, <laughs> but I'm involved because I get a big buzz out of helping kids. Yeah. I don't get a big buzz out of dealing with union reps. I don't get a big buzz by dealing with Ofsted. We won't go down that route. No. You know, and we certainly don't get a, a kick from trying to deal with politicians who haven't got a clue. And I really mean that. They simply don't know. And in the past, I used to think, well, it's just a bit of ignorance. But actually, I think they just don't care. No. No one cares about our kids. When, when the school started being closed down, there was very little talk about the individual kids being affected here and how soon can we open our schools. We had everyone going lockdown, lockdown. And now, of course, I saw some of his, um, Keir Starmer's very nice graphs to say how the downturn following the the lockdown yeah. in educational standards yet. Yeah. What does he come out with today? The teachers are coming out of the classroom again. Yeah. Yeah. He's just proved to himself the best place for teachers in the classroom, and that's the best place to start learning, not going off on some course or mm. whatever. Well, let's not forget, Keir Starmer was the man who didn't want to reopen the schools. You know, every time uh, the Conservatives wanted to reopen the schools and get the kids back into the classrooms um, during the various different lockdowns, he was always against it because the unions were against it. No, I mean, everyone seemed to be against it. And uh, so I, I remember playing games as best I could. Do you remember the bubbles? Do you yes. remember the bubbles? Yeah. Anyone with half a brain would have talked about, hold on a minute, you've gone through all sorts. Of, I, I bought, it cost huge amounts of school money, uh, some barriers, 
some um, yeah some, you know, some screens and things. to separate my bubbles. But yeah. Of course, if you if you thought for a little second, actually these children have got brothers and sisters. Yeah. They go home together for God's sake. Yeah. There's me dancing around, changing the timetable, making them all stay away from each other, and I knew full well they were going home together. Yeah. Well, but I would have done anything to keep my school open, yeah. to stop the friendly Wendy's finding all sorts of reasons to shut it. But put the kids first. They've forgotten about it again because it's all a political football and the middle classes will be fine. They've got the contacts. They've got money for their separate tutors and everything else. Mm. Uh, but if we really talk about social mobility, the only vehicle in our country is education yes. and i wish to god people took it a bit more seriously by putting the kids needs first yeah exactly right and it will come as no surprise to you that the graphs i'm looking at right now for the department for education show declines in writing grammar maths yeah. and science but guess what the decline has happened over the period of time between 2019 and 2021 when there were no exams exactly i mean you and know why, <laughs> and, and why do we why do we not have exams it was March, if you remember. Yeah. Anyone who knows anything about education will know. By the time March comes along, never mind, you know, you've gone through the curriculum. You're now in revision mode, getting ready, getting those kids, do the stuff they've done the previous years to make sure they are prepared. But no, we didn't have exams. Mm. Then Williamson brought in that algorithm. Oh, God. I'd forgotten about him. What about, yeah, I tell you what, I'll never forget about him. What a joke. Yeah. What a joke. And all the while, you're trying to say to the kids, look, don't let this be an excuse for failure. Keep working hard. And then you've got these, I try not to swear on your program. I know, it's difficult, isn't it? Bozos is a good word. They, they just don't know or they don't want to know. Yeah. But ultimately, I've already said it. They don't care. No. They really don't. What about this? The latest thing from Gillian Keegan, who's the current Secretary of State for Education, I think. Um, she wants teachers to mark homework using AI, so they're not even doing it themselves. How's that going to help? Yeah, it's not, is it? You know, how is that going to help? We've already had, I mean, during lockdown, we did the best we could, you know, made sure we could monitor the kids' work as best we could. But they can't have it both ways. I thought it had been universally accepted that the best place for children to learn is in school with a good teacher that they trust. And yet they keep coming up with things that are different to that, which is a handy add-on, but must never replace. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, maybe we should replace government ministers with AI. See how that goes. Well, it might be able to replace government ministers and put them in places where they have a little bit of experience or at least talk to the right people. I don't understand what these civil servants do who are advisors in education. Mm. Uh, I thought you'd think they might have been ex-head teachers or ex-teachers. I have found that sometimes they're not. They're just statisticians. Yeah. Well, that's no, that's no good for kids. It really isn't. And you can't just keep switching people around. I've always been astonished that, you know, they'll suddenly move somebody from the Department of Defence and they'll suddenly become the Secretary of State for Education. You go, yeah. sorry, that doesn't really make out any sense to right. me. You've got, you've got a head of Ofsted. Yeah. And I truly believe in accountability. You know, who's never taught. How, how can that be? You know, another area that is not fit for purpose anymore. But of course, the unions are going to jump on the bandwagon now and they're going to want it banned and they might well get their own way. Mm. Whereas I just want it changed so that it means something. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the stresses and strains of a head teacher waiting for Ofsted 
is the fact that it, they're not sure what they're going to be measured on. Yeah. And of course, this year, the emphasis, they've decided to avoid talking about outcomes. The very thing that parents and kids need most of all, i.e. a damn good set of, ed- of qualifications, Ofsted are turning a blind eye to and want to concentrate on the curriculum. Yeah. And yet they know there's a crisis with teachers. I will not teach something rather than have a numpty in front of my kids. Exactly right. And that's the problem. You need to get more uh, people in who know what they're talking about and who know how to do what they're doing. Serge, great to talk to you as ever. Thank you. Uh, Serge Kefai there, uh, Sacred Heart School in London, uh, runs a great operation, uh, takes absolutely no nonsense from anybody, including government ministers and including kids. Because at the end of the day, yes, he cares about the kids, but they're not in charge of the school. And that's part of the problem, isn't it? 0344 499 1000. We'll take some calls. Ian Collins will be here coming up shortly. Uh, Vanessa from 4, of course, 7 o'clock. It's Jeremy Carl, the return. Uh, Piers Morgan, uncensored. And the talk from 9, which I think I'm on. So I shall see you there. But coming up next, we'll take your calls. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.